From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Over this season of The Spying Game, Rory Bremner will be joined by a mix of experts in the field of deception and fellow enthusiasts from the world of entertainment as they attempt to sort the Moscow rules from the Hollywood fabrication. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. Each week on the show, we're tackling topics including double agents, escape, outfoxing the enemy, and betrayal. This time on The Spying Game, it's... The Americans. There you are, an illegal, a family in Germany, a new family in America, working for the KGB. And who moves in next door? (laughs) The FBI. (laughs) I joined thinking I would have a lot of trouble lying to people about what I did. And it took about a week for me to get used to it. And it it went from being very uncomfortable and strange to just completely normal. I asked a question. I said, am I under arrest? And the answer was uh, just one word, no. And then about a minute later, I said, so what took you so long? playing a game and the game is called life I took nothing really seriously I just played and I knew that you know somehow I would always come out a winner today I'm joined by two men who spent their lives peering over or indeed creeping behind the Iron Curtain first we have a television producer writer and former CIA officer the creator of the smash hit television series The Americans, and the author of both The Ordinary Spy and Russia Upside Down, Joe Weisberg. Welcome to The Spying Game. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Rory. Thanks. It's great to be here. You were going to write the ultimate spy novel, but you ended up writing The Americans. What happened? Many years after I left the CIA, I wasn't at the CIA very long, and many years after I left, I finally got over the idea that it, that it would be a betrayal of all my old friends and organization <laughs> to write about it. So I wrote a novel, and as I, I sat down thinking... I I know enough to write the most realistic spy novel ever written. And I started to do that. And after about a chapter, I realized it was very, very boring. And I'm sure Jack will be able to to weigh in on that, that it is yep. not quite, uh, it is normally presented either by Hollywood or even really by John Le Carre. It's, it's a lot duller than that. So I quickly switched to having a story and a plot as an engine. And that, I think, prepared me in some way to, to work in Hollywood later and to actually make a TV show. You set out originally to be a cold warrior. And with the Americans, you're a cold warrior by other means, exploring that whole extraordinary era and indeed our, our modern era, which we'll come to as well. Alongside Joe, we have German-American author, IT specialist and former sleeper agent of the KGB, Jack Barsky, who spied on the United States for over a decade. Uh, not only are there parallels, by the way, which we'll explore between your life and the Americans, but you ended up in in an episode yeah every time i give a speech uh, people ask me you know what i think of the americans and my answer is invariably i, I tell them this is the best show ever with with a pause i say because i was in it <laughs> <laughs> they gave me a limited role by the way all i had to do is stand around and and look suspicious <laughs> almost the opposite of your actual job <laughs> exactly exactly right i'm new to the americans i've got to say i'm halfway through the first series and, and loving it but when i when i heard of this fantastic series featuring elizabeth and philip i naturally assumed it was the crown but <laughs> but but your elizabeth and philip played by Kerry russell and matthew reese brilliantly played are two soviet kgb intelligence officers posing as an american married couple spying on the united states from the inside now where on earth would you have got such a fantastic idea in 2010 a group of 10 illegals people exactly like jack who were living in the united states uh undercover posing as americans were arrested um the fbi had been on to them for some time it appears because of a source that u.s intelligence had developed that gave them up and i got a call from some producers who said hey maybe you should make a show out of this because you have some expertise in this area uh, and I started kind of wandering the streets and, and thinking about it and thinking that, first of all, it should be put back in the Cold War to, so that there were higher stakes than in 2010. In 2010, you could sort of shrug it off a little bit. Yeah, I was wondering, because you set it in the Reagan era, yeah. the height of the Cold War, and, and a lot of paranoia around. I mean, things were very heightened. The tensions were very high, yeah. weren't they? It was a, a very stressful time in the Cold War and also a time when I was growing up. 
which meant that I had a lot of uh, memories and feelings about it. And, and I had sort of been shaped politically by that era. You said I had been a Cold Warrior, and that was true. I really went into the CIA because I had grown up thinking of the Soviet Union as an evil empire, and I wanted to do my part to fight it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you laughing at that because it is kind of funny. Yeah. But boy, it didn't seem funny to me at the time. There's some parallels here because I grew up thinking of the United States as the most evil country in the world. And that's one of the reasons I joined. Your backgrounds are both interesting because, Joe, you were a Jewish-American liberal family. Was it kind of the ultimate transgression for you to, to join the CIA, which is kind of the tool of the establishment, really? In a way, I think it was. You know, it was interesting. There was such a broad consensus in America about the Soviet Union being evil and being the enemy and us needing to fight them and stand up for freedom and democracy, that even a lot of sort of classically liberal families like my own had profoundly anti-Soviet views. Mm -hmm. But it was a little bit of a bridge too far to join the CIA. I didn't know anybody who had done that. I couldn't tell people I had done it. So it was only in my own mind that I understood the depth of the transgression. But yeah, that was getting a little carried away. Jack, I keep calling you Jack, but you weren't born Jack, were you? What was your, it was Albrecht Dietrich. That's close enough. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the only place where I'm actually uh, responding to that name is when I go back to Germany. They call me by my nickname, actually, which I will not disclose to the Brits. <laughs> so tell me about your family. You said you had a similar view of the Americans as the Americans had of the Soviet Union at that time, characterized by Reagan as the evil empire. And Joe's talked in the past of being sort of almost brainwashed into that, that very black and white picture. You were born in East Germany, 1949. Yes. And your father was a, a Marxist. Well, let me tell you something. My ideology was formed by the system, not by my parents. My father was, he was a party member because it, it was convenient uh, for his career. The indoctrination that we received was by the system, starting in kindergarten, uh, elementary school, middle school, and then there were all kinds of organizations, youth organizations. I mean, TV and radio, it, it was an assault. Mm -hmm. There was no other opinion allowed. So it was fundamentally impossible not to submit to this unless you had an external source, let's say a relative in the West, who give you some ideas that this wasn't all true, and most of it was actually a big old lie. And talking about lies and deception, I mean, that was the biggest one I ever fell for. Really? Yeah. By the time I was uh, recruited by the KGB, I was a 100% revolutionary, and I was going to help to bring down the evil United States and the evil West Germans and so forth and free the world. What was it that opened your eyes, changed your mind? I had the luxury of very, very slow decontamination. You know, when I first uh, arrived in the United States, I realized that some of what we were taught wasn't true. I was always looking for all the evil people. And my first professional job was uh, with an insurance company, a bank's insurance company and uh, military industrial complex type companies were the epitome of evil. And when I started working for uh, MetLife, I couldn't find any evil people. <laughs> and we were treated, it was interesting. Uh, it was in those days, insurance was very paternalistic. And uh, I felt almost like I was back in East Germany because they treated us nice. They give us free lunch. It was like, wow, that's not so bad. And so within, within a couple of years, I sort of uh, landed sort of in between ideologically, between communism and socialism. In those days, there was something developed that was called the convergence theory by uh, Western social democrats. And believe it or not, even the senior folks in the KGB were buying into that idea that uh, eventually the West and the East would converge and create some kind of a, a, a mixture of the good things on both sides. And then after I resigned from the KGB and because of the accessibility of information through the internet, I found out what kind of an evil state I grew up in. And so I became rather strongly anti-communist, and that's who I am today. I think it's notable how far a free lunch goes. You know, if you actually want to like look at human nature and see if you can relate to this, mm -hmm. free lunch has a lot of power. I remember when I first started working in Hollywood, my first job working on a TV show, and they brought us free lunch every day. And I was like, this is the greatest place I've ever been. That's all it took. Can only be topped by free beer. Uh, you're such a cheap 
date both of you um, <laughs> <laughs> just one last thing about your, your background there jack before we move on to how you were recruited i mean very early on as i think as a family your first family trip to berlin that was rudely interrupted by a very physical manifestation of the cold war was it not what a coincidence i i was uh 12 years old uh, august 13 1961 uh, we were on a family vacation on the baltic sea and we were driving back and uh, my parents had an idea that we would stop by Berlin and even go to the West and buy some clothes that you couldn't get in the East. And uh, we couldn't get in. I mean, the Autobahn is a ring around Berlin. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't get on the ring. And nobody told us why. There were soldiers that said, go home. Berlin is closed. And when we got home, we listened to the radio, found out that the anti-fascist wall of protection had just been erected. And I said, yeah, great. And so did my parents. Uh, I was convinced that West Germany and the United States were uh, plotting to invade us and, uh, and then further, f further down the road invade the Soviet Union. And this wall was to protect us from the evil West Germans, as opposed to keeping the folks that had been leaving in droves out. It's amazing, isn't it? The power of a wall to a populist leader. <laughs> Joe, how were you approached and why did you agree to join the CIA? Um, I wasn't recruited in that traditional sense. Um, in fact, I remember when I was at Yale, there was a big argument about whether or not the CIA should be allowed to recruit on campus. And I can't remember which way it ended up getting resolved. But I really recruited myself. Uh, I was a couple of years out of college and I was working a, at a resettlement organization and I was bored and I had, you know, had a childhood full of adventure and spy novels and I wanted something interesting, exciting to do where I wouldn't have to sit behind a desk. So I thought I should join the CIA. I wonder how you do that. And kind of on a lark, I looked them up in the phone book and <laughs> to my surprise, they were listed and I somewhat nervously called them. And they acted as if that was perfectly normal because I guess to them it was. And they sent me a borderline hundred page job application to fill out. And that kind of began a very, very bureaucratic, not surprisingly. But all these mm -hmm. intelligence organizations are highly bureaucratic. Why wouldn't they be? Uh, and that's how my journey started there. Why did you want to be a spy? I had a couple of things going on in my brain that I look back at with curiosity and interest. One was that in my mind, because I had, at a young age, graduated from James Bond to George Smiley and John le Carré, mm -hmm. I believed I knew what it was really like. What it was really like was John le Carré and George Smiley and the sort of intellectual masterminds who understood all the puzzle pieces and constructed all these elaborate plans. And by the way, we're all very lonely people. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, this was not conscious, but that, to me, struck a chord. That's how I saw myself. That's who I could be, how, who I wanted to be, how I could sort of transform my loneliness into something powerful and important and, and secret. And there's no element of it that did not appeal to me. And then, you know, Jack talks about sort of those moments where he, he was sort of slowly decontaminated uh, <laughs> at the CIA. The first thing that happens when you join, if you're in the kind of training program that I was in, is they stick you in a room for six weeks of learning how the CIA bureaucracy is organized. And it's, it's, it, 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 like if you tried to come up with a comic version of this, you couldn't do it any better. It's literally six weeks sitting in a room with organizational charts and, and everything else. And if you are committed enough to your fantasy, you're able to kind of sleep through it and tell yourself that didn't just happen. But Probably for everyone, some something starts knocking on the window and saying, this isn't what you thought. This isn't what you thought. No, no. I, I don't remember Sean Connery being a particular expert on the bureaucracy exactly. of, the, of the secret services. Exactly. Jack, how were you recruited? What was, the, what was the process and why did you join? First of all, I can echo a lot of the things that Joe just uh, shared the KGB was just as bureaucratic, except they didn't give me an org chart. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I could not look up the KGB in the phone book. Uh, they, they were not listed. They were just like the CIA. They were picking from the best out of uh, universities. And uh, I had a really good reputation. I mean, I was one of a hundred uh, concurrent recipients of a national scholarship. You had to be an all-A student and mm -hmm. active in the youth movement and a party member and all that. And I was, I was even a member of the basketball team. So I was really well-rounded for a young person at that time. Uh, the, the first 
individual who talked to me was a German, but I strongly believed he was a volunteer for the KGB. He was not Stasi. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, the second meeting then took place uh, uh, with another person in a restaurant, and the other person was a Russian, and the German, who never introduced himself by his name, he, he just got up from the uh, table and said, uh, this is Herman, and we're working with our Soviet comrades. And so there I was with the KGB. I mean, it took a year and a half of getting to know one, each other until I finally was made the offer. And the offer was valid for 24 hours. Are you in or not? And we need a decision by tomorrow morning. And that was done in Berlin by uh, a very high-level official who also, nobody introduced themselves. If they did, they were cover names like mine. I, I gave everybody my cover name. So your life has been defined by two choices that you made essentially there was that choice then are you in the kgb or not right and later on when you're in america as an illegal and you get a message a signal saying come back it's over yeah that was part of the communication plan it was the danger signal which meant there's imminent danger and i i was to go right away don't even pack your luggage just get the emergency documents i had a set of emergency documents uh uh, in a park, uh, and then just make a beeline to the Canadian border. Well, the one thing that they didn't know is at the time I had an 18-month-old daughter in the United States who I had fallen in love with. And <laughs> it's an interesting thing that uh, I just, I realized it very recently. Up to that point, I had been playing a game, and the game is called Life. I took nothing really seriously. I just played. And I knew that you know, somehow I would always come out a winner. But at that moment, when I had to make that decision, whether to go or to stay, because staying had a number of risks associated uh, with them that you can imagine. The FBI may have arrested me. The KGB may have uh, not liked very much if I didn't obey their command. So anyway, at that moment, I discovered my humanity because I decided to stay. I'm going to go straight back to that that first the first choice are you in the kgb or not why did you agree it wasn't an easy choice because uh, i was already uh, employed by the university as a assistant professor i would have made it to become one of the youngest tenured professors at the university of jena and uh, in in europe uh, tenured professors are demigods they are uh -huh. you know the, the cream of the crop in society so why why give that up was it was it the ideology the evil empire stuff, the fact that you could really do something. Let me tell you what actually tipped the needle. It was 50-50, but my sense of adventure eventually made me say yes. I wanted to travel, and that really tipped the scale. I said, I got I to gotta go. I, I got I to see places, and I want to be a hero. Well, as you later discover, and as Joe's hinted at earlier, it's, it's not all fun and games and travel and excitement. How does a spy get from Moscow to New York? In a zigzag route, uh, you understand? <laughs> the, the whole idea was when, when I got to the United States, I was going to morph into Jack Barsky because I had a, 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 a genuine birth certificate under that name. So now... Had they given you that early on? Yes, I, I took that with me. That was the name on a gravestone in Maryland. Yes, and the route had something to do with the fact that nobody but nobody would be able to trace me back to Moscow. So we're, we're going from Moscow first to Belgrade, which was a friendly socialist country still. And from Belgrade, I took a train to Vienna, which was a neutral country. I met an agent and I changed passports. And then I took a train to Rome, which was a Western country, a NATO country. Changed a passport again. From Rome, I flew to Mexico City. That was the safest way to, to inject me into the United States. None of that to me was clear. They didn't tell me anything. They, nobody explained anything to me. They just told me, do this, 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 and this. Would you have had backstories for all of the people you had passports for? Yes. Uh, they weren't really as elaborate as the backstory for Jack Barsky, which uh, was about six pages with a lot of details. Uh, first grade teachers, uh, you know, this really, really detailed. When If people were to ask me about my past friends, 
I, I, imaginary friends, obviously, uh, places where I went to school and so forth. A German mother to explain if anybody picked up a German accent. I, indeed, uh, indeed. And uh, so we killed off my American-born father uh, very early, so I didn't have to worry about him in, in the backstory. But the, the backstories for the uh, false passports were maybe, I would say, a half a page, just like the basics. <clears throat> I had to learn and uh, remember a lot of disconnected facts. And in those days, my brain was still functioning. <laughs> I was really very good at this. The uh, the KGB offered me you know, some way to take notes and take the notes with me, and I declined. I pulled it off. You know, as I said, the brain was working. <laughs> well, also, it was the, the training, because this is another thing that you have in common with Joe, training and training and training. Mm. I mean, it, it, it can take years, does take years. I mean, Joe, what were your memories when you started out at the CIA? What was the, what was the training like? I look back uh, kind of fondly on that phase. You know, it's interesting. First of all, the Jack's story is amazing, and the long version of it in his book is not to be missed. I, I know the people who listen to your podcast are big fans of of how it really works, so please read Jack's book to hear the the longer version of this. It's it's interesting that as the illegals were trained, you know, they're trained alone by small individuals and small groups of people who take them around to various secret locations in, in Moscow. That was not the training I had at all. Mine was much more bureaucratic and was part of something bureaucratically entitled the Career Trainee Program. I thought this program was great. First of all, for certain elements of it, it integrated people who were going into all different parts of the agency, mm -hmm. analysts, operatives, administrators, so that they would all get to know each other. Mm -hmm. I know this isn't what you want to hear, but it's it's the truth. And it's good. It's well-designed and it's, and it's effective at that. So that the idea is that throughout your career, instead of being isolated in your place, you know people from other places. And it really, it really... I think was great for that, really well thought out. You had this sort of beginning dunking into the well of bureaucracy that was a little bit shocking for, I think it was about six weeks. It's as if they knew that they might lose you after that six weeks. They didn't They didn't know it well enough to move that component to the end, but they knew it well enough to take you into the paramilitary training right after, because that's closer to what you fantasized about, and it's a lot of fun, and it's still got a certain element of sort of play to it. Mm -hmm. In between that and other sections, you do interim assignments at headquarters where you go and work on a desk and sort of do the things that, in my case, case officers do when they're at home, when they're stationed at home. So more like desk work managing or, or really helping people manage espionage operations abroad. And then you go back into, into these different components. At the end, you separate out more according to what your career path is going to be. So at the end, I went into the the real training program to be a spy abroad, which is much lengthier. And at that point, you're only with the people who are going on that career track. And that's where you learn the things like Morse code, although not Morse code. So, I mean, did you actually go into the field or had you by that stage decided that it wasn't what you wanted to be? I left the agency shortly before going on my first assignment abroad. I mean, it was a little bit more circuitous than that. Did they send you a bill for the training? That's no joke, <laughs> by the way. I mean, they didn't. But 30 years ago, there was sometimes reference made to if you quit immediately after the training program, you might be billed for what that cost the government to train you. I, I stayed around quite a while afterwards doing different uh, assignments at headquarters and whatnot before I, before I resigned. So nobody ever brought that up. And I, by the way, doubt they ever actually do it. So there's Joe training for the CIA and then after a while deciding he's going to go a different path. Jack, what was your job in, in the United States? What did they want you to do? <laughs> it's it's sort of build it and they will come or go there and do something <laughs> now the first two years the the task was very specific acquire genuine bona fide american documents get a job build the foundation of getting to know eventually uh decision makers uh, or influencers in the realm of politics foreign policy and the military. How did they think you were going to do that? Listen, uh, in the long run, I actually succeeded, but it was a very long game and they were way, way too optimistic because, you know, you got to have standing in society to meet certain people. You can't just show up at, uh, at uh, a conservative think tank and, and, you know, befriend people. That doesn't work. So from that point of view, I, I, I failed. But the part where I don't know whether I succeeded or failed is... Uh, my task was always, always meet people. It doesn't matter who they are, what standing in society they have, particularly when I was in college, meet as many students, 
profile them with a view of uh, potentially recruiting them down the road. I was never, ever told whether somebody was approached or even recruited. This is what they were really good at, the KGB. It's compartmentalization and in letting you know just as much as they think you must know in order to fulfill a task. My role was that of a spotter. Then a second person would actually approach the individual and if successfully recruited, the handler was yet a third person and the three would not know about each other. I just want to jump in with a little historical perspective on that, or by historical perspective, maybe I really mean my perspective. I don't know if Jack will agree with this or not, but after the 1950s, if you were working with limited information, so to some degree, this is always guesswork, but based on what's publicly available and known, if you were to ask the question, did the entire Soviet and later Russian illegals program ever produce enough value for the Soviet Union and Russia to justify the incredible resources they poured into that program, I would say the answer is no. The answer is absolutely no. In the book by Mitrokin, he talks about this as well. However, there's a, an emotional uh, attachment within the organization of the KGB that carried forward to today. The illegals were uh, adored. We were the cream of the crop. They thought the highest of us. And uh, there were some, some legends spun around some of the illegals, particularly Rudolf Abel, who fundamentally did nothing. <laughs> There's no proof that he actually had a, a strong, active part in stealing the atomic secret. But he became a public figure, and he was exchanged for uh, Gary Powers. And as such, the United States made a lot of propaganda out of it. Look, what we, we caught this really, really dangerous spy. And when he went back to the Soviet Union, you know, he was public. So the Communist Party said, look, we had this really, really good guy right there where it counts. <laughs> By the way, though, that's so it's really interesting. I think there's some parallels with espionage in general. But the one exception to this I've ever run into that's, I think, pretty interesting you know, the KGB and the Soviets did not only have illegals in America, they had them not only in other places in the world, but even in their own uh, East European uh, ally countries. And apparently, a sort of unintended consequence of this program was that the illegals who were in Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968, because they had gotten outside the Soviet Union mm. and were exposed more broadly to the world, they were actually able to report much more accurately and honestly back to the Soviet Union what was going on in Hungary and Czechoslovakia and without the sort of assumptions that these were sort of states in rebellion that needed to be repressed. Now, they weren't listened to, but there should still be some credit given to the fact that it was almost an unintended consequence of the program, but a very interesting one. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, th those illegals also had a much easier time integrating in society. You know, they came from the friendly you know, mm -hmm. the uh, big brother in Soviet Union, and they were fundamentally received with open arms. Yeah. I'm interested, I think you are as well, Joe, this idea that, you know, there is this aura about the spies, but was there not what part of the reason that, that you left was that you were told that these are incredibly important people doing incredibly important work? And you just thought, actually, no, there's a, it's just, just fairly ordinary and, and run of the mill. Yeah, the, I want to. I want to. I wouldn't say exactly a caveat, but I want to give a little, just fair perspective. I was only at the CIA for a couple of years. Yeah, I didn't serve abroad. I was exposed to a doing desk work to a lot of cases in different parts of the agency, so I did see and read a lot. And I have my own reasons for thinking that what I saw was representative of most of what the CIA did, but I cannot claim it was representative of all the agents. However, with that being said. I read a lot of case files of a lot of agents in a lot of different parts of the agency, different geographic parts of the agency, and I never saw anything that seemed to me valuable enough to justify putting that person's life at risk. And generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, if you recruit somebody to spy for you, you're putting their life at risk, whether they be executed or put in jail, depending on the country they're in. It is dangerous work, and the uh, odds of exposure are not that low. Right. They do get caught, you know, from time to time. And the information we were getting, it just didn't seem any good to me. And I thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to get somebody killed. A, I don't want to get somebody killed, but we really don't want to get somebody killed for nothing. What were they actually looking for? Was it just like a fishing expedition? Just, you know, go there and just find out 
what you can was it was it that vague um well i think john amendus sums it up quite well she talks about you know the job of the spy is to find out the plans and, and the intentions of the enemy and then you report back and it's for the policymakers to make of that what they will but was there anything specific they were looking for there's kind of a collision between the desire which i think you just explained well and then the kind of bureaucratic reality so there's a sort of a fantasy that you recruit the spy who gives you the information that allows you to realize, for example, the Iranian nuclear program is far more along than anybody knows and, or and, here are its vulnerabilities. When I say that's a fantasy, I mean because it almost never happens. I, I can't say definitively that it never happens. In fact, it may have happened once or twice. But when that fantasy meets the bureaucracy, what happens is you have a cadre of officers whose job is to pursue that, even though they're, realistically speaking, not going to get it. And so what they have to do to advance in their careers and to do their job and to feel that they're taking a shot at what they're supposed to get is just recruit people who might have some access to some secret information. And the reality, in my view, I suspect, based on what I saw, again, a long time ago, was that very, very, very rarely pans out. To some degree, you hear the argument made, well, that's okay. You have to throw a lot of things at the wall and see what sticks. My sense is that's not a good justification for it in this case. Not enough sticks, and there's too much misery caused by throwing the things at the wall. Yes, and you said earlier uh, the enormous resources that the Soviet Union poured into their spy networks. For Jack, we were sort of saying not terribly much return. I mean, what what was the hard information that you wanted from the United States at that time in the 80s? Well, Joe just pretty much uh, summarized this, uh, getting close to decision makers and, and finding out the plans of the United States. But allow me to volunteer two cases yes. that in espionage, in modern espionage, that absolutely changed the world. A, that's the successful theft of the atomic secret. And uh, I was actually trained by two individuals who were very much involved in this, the Lana and Morris Cohen. And secondly, there was, I think in the 80s, NATO had a large maneuver called Abel Archer. The Russians thought that was the beginning of the war. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States had a double agent within the Russian military, and he signaled to his handlers in the West to stop that exercise. This could have turned into a, a hot war instead of a cold war. I'll just, if I can comment on those, because I'm not sure I'm quite on the same page with Jack, although I, he may be right. And I'll go a little far afield for just one second to say that one also has to say that the KGB had some real success when they were targeting their espionage efforts at technology. Yes. They really stole quite a bit of technology they wouldn't be able to get otherwise and successfully imported that and used it in both military and civilian applications. It's also sort of shows the catch-22 because that was successful, but mm -hmm. had they realized that instead of doing that, they had focused on building their own capabilities and done whatever they could have to build their own capabilities, they probably would have had a better shot as longevity as a nation. So I would say it ended up being self-defeating. I think the atom bomb, it, there's no disputing that that's the greatest espionage success in all history. And there's no disputing the fact that if you were the Soviet Union at, at the time, you would have wanted to do that. Anybody would have wanted to. So I'm not, that was a huge espionage success. I think there's little doubt that with their expertise in all scientific areas, the Soviets would have developed the bomb anyway on their own. It would have taken longer. And to Jack's point, we don't know how the world might have changed had there been another five years where they didn't have the bomb. But it's not a straight case of they never would have had it otherwise and continually been dominated by the United States. And then finally, the Abel Archer question is interesting because there is a, I think in the last few years, there's a growing number of experts who are questioning that. Uh, questioning if it hasn't been somewhat overblown. And in fact, I think it was Akromeyev, who I think was the chief of the Soviet general staff at the time, mm -hmm. who who generally was considered a forthright and, and honest guy, not a blowhard or a liar. Uh, again, I may have the wrong guy, but I think he said that he had never even heard of Abel Archer. And it made you wonder if, some, if there was a little bit of mythology growing up around it. But I don't think we really know yet. And, and again, Jack may be quite right about it. There's no argument that I have here because one of the things I tell people, 
the real ultimate truth about what's happening in the world of espionage sits in heads of individuals and it disappears once these individuals disappear from the earth. Even documented stuff is not necessarily true. You started talking about this at the beginning of this. Uh, this is a world where lies dominate. Yeah. So, Jack, we left you in America. Uh, we just talked a little bit about what the KGB were trying to do, what the CIA uh, were trying to do. Now, in the Americans, Joe, you have a situation where you have your Soviet illegals living in suburban Virginia next door to an FBI counterintelligence officer which and you think this is come off it this is ridiculous until you realize that there is a parallel jack you were laughing already because there you are an illegal a family in germany a new family in america working for the kgb and who moves in next door <laughs> the fbi <laughs> when did you find that out how long were they there before you realized that the fbi had moved in and were watching you I found out uh, after I was contacted and, and, and so, sort of during the debriefing process, as I became more friendly with uh, the lead agent uh, of that investigation, I got to tell you something, how they got that house. They were watching me from a distance. And uh, the person who was watching one day saw that there was a couple living in there. And uh, he, he saw that the wife had come home earlier from work while the husband had a lover in the house. <laughs> and this, and uh, the house came on the market a, a month later as a result of this. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is meat and drink to you, isn't it, Joe? Because what seems to fascinate you through the Americans is the human relationships, the families, uh, how we deceive our families, really, and the, and the damage that it can do. Did you laugh when you heard that, that Jack had had the FBI living next door to him? Or did you know that? Was that what you based the story on in the Americans? <laughs> no, no, I, I didn't. I didn't know that. For me, it was almost more of a uh, Northern Virginia real estate question. Um, <laughs> a lot of people, when, when the show came out, said that's ridiculous. But I knew from living in that area that there were these big condo complexes and there was literally no reason that wouldn't happen. Now, if you're the writer and it feels realistic to you, but feels silly to everybody else, you haven't actually succeeded. But but nevertheless, I, I maintain that was was realistic enough. But in the early stages where I am now, it's quite interesting because Stan Beerman, you can never tell whether he's being suspicious or it's just coincidence that he happens to come out with something which makes the KGB agents, the illegals, blood run cold. And you think, well, it's just a coincidence. And that's a very, very good dramatic device. Yeah. So, Jack, your cover is blown. Yeah. Well, you see the, the dab of red paint on a metal beam in the subway, and you know the KGB wants you home. And you decide, no, I'm going to stay here. I've got a daughter. I love this daughter. I have a family in America. I'm going to stay here. Yeah. How do you manage to persuade the KGB to let you stay in suburban America? Because they, they want you back because you've got secrets. By the way, my first response was uh, a thought. Oh, shit. Mm. <laughs> because... I had uh, tried to figure out, you know, if and when my assignment ends, how to support this little girl. So when I did make the decision, I uh, told him that uh, in a letter with secret writing that I had con contracted HIV AIDS. Oh. And in those days, that was a death sentence. I knew from discussions back in Moscow that uh, the Soviet Union was very, very... Uh, worried about letting people into the country to carry into their country that uh, deathly infectious disease. And they bought it. I didn't know until many years later, but they actually declared me dead to my family. So they, they believed you were dead? They did. And, uh, you know, this is, they believed me because they didn't know that I had a child and I had a track record of, uh, of telling them the truth, even when it got to a situation where I messed up and they couldn't have known that I messed up. So I, I had a reputation of being totally honest with them. And so when I sprung that big lie, they had no reason to believe that I was lying. Heavens. Once I decided to uh, not follow the orders and, and, and stay back in the United States, I uh, activated a bunch of counterintelligence measures and there was no sign whatsoever that somebody was uh, after me. So, you know, I decided I would just disappear into a middle-class background and live out my life as an ordinary American, you know, move to the suburbs, 
and, and I was nine years undetected by the FBI until a defector from the KGB had some information that he shared with uh, MI6 that allowed the FBI to find me. How did you know that they'd blown your cover? When they said hello. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in eastern Pennsylvania at the time, and there was a toll gate uh, to cross from New Jersey into Pennsylvania. And right after the, I put my 50 cents into that basket, uh, I was stopped by a state police, and they told me to just uh, move to the side, uh, routine traffic control, stepped out of the car, and uh, there comes from, from the back, comes a, another gentleman, and he shows me an ID. I didn't look at it. And then he said, FBI, we would like to talk to you. Boy, oh boy, was that a surprise. Do you realize that's it? The fellow who introduced himself said, I, I became white as the driven snow. Mm. But he also states that he was surprised that I calmed down very quickly and uh, was able to just act in a normal fashion uh so this was like the dam breaking i had forgotten that i once was a spy really uh and all of a sudden that dam broke and said oh my god this is all the things all the bad things that could happen you know i could wind up in jail uh my wife uh would be deported because she got citizenship based on my marrying her and then my kids would wind up wards of the states uh it, it was really really a lot of uncertainty but I did keep my composure when when they, they put me in a car on a way to a motel where they did the first interview. And uh, I, I asked the question, I said, am I under arrest? And the answer was uh, just one word, no. And then about a minute later, my ability to inject humor into any kind of situation uh, popped out when I said, so what took you so long? <laughs> Joe talks about this, the conversation when you tell a member of your family that you're a spy, and it quite often happens, actually, surprisingly. Joe, am I right in thinking early in the Americans that Philip and Elizabeth's children, they have no idea that their their parents are spies? That's right. Do they find out later, or is that a spoiler? I think that's a spoiler that I wouldn't want to give away, but I would say that that's sort of tension that hangs over the series of will they tell them? Will they find out? How will they find out? Won't they find out? And what will the effect of that be is uh, it works It works well as a dramatic device. And it was pretty central to the creation of the show because one thing I knew from working at the CIA was this was an issue. Mm-hmm. This was a real life issue that hadn't really been dramatized on television because it was too obscure. And as Jack said, it's all a secret world of lies. So it wasn't something, something that gets talked about, but it was sort of a perfect family dramatic situation for a show. Mm -hmm. In real life, Jack, so you've decided to defy the KGB, not go back because of your love for this 18-month-old daughter, Chelsea. When did you tell her the truth? That was um, when I drove her to college. It was a four-hour drive, and that's when I unpacked everything. I was just, I was driving and staring ahead, and, and I told her the story, and she went like, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> and there was no, nothing nothing back because I immediately said to her, listen, there's no danger. I'm working with the FBI. We're cool. Nothing nothing bad will happen to you or us. And the, the KGB, if they had wanted to do something bad to me, would have done this much sooner. Joe, what did your friends and family think when they found out that you were a spy? When did you have that conversation with them? And, you know, I alluded to this before that when you're sort of in this culture working in an intelligence organization, it becomes a fundamental part of who you are. I joined thinking I would have a lot of trouble lying to people about what I did. And it took about a week for me to get used to it. And it (laughs) went from being very uncomfortable and strange to just completely normal. In a sense, I might've been able to to do it forever. Uh, So even when I left the organization, I still, that was still who I was. I was still someone who lied about that part of my life and was secretive and couldn't share it and didn't want to share it and thought it'd be a betrayal to share it. It took about a decade. And after about a decade, I uh, let go of my cover, um, which was really just a bureaucratic exercise of calling or writing in and saying, can I let go of my cover? And then saying yes. Uh, And then uh, I wrote a novel because I had that freedom to write about it. And, And I guess a little bit before that, I had started telling people, and it was mostly just awkward. 
it was mostly just very awkward and weird because what I felt was I was sitting down with people I was closest to in the world. By the way, my parents and my brother knew all along. So apart from them, the people I was closest to in the world, which were other relatives and my my very dear friends, and I was basically saying to them, I've been telling you a huge, huge whopping lie about a fundamental part of my life for a really long time. I, it was horrible, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they took it, I think, with a plum, more or less. I mean, nobody... Nobody really got down on me, but it was it was not an emotionally easy, easy thing to do. And the only uh, redeeming funny moment was with a friend of mine who uh, throughout the time I had worked there had sort of teased me that, hey, hey, you work at the CIA, which he didn't know and had no way to know. But he sort of sniffed out a little bit and uh, it used to drive me crazy because when you're undercover, you don't want that. Because he didn't do it just, he did it in, around other people too. And I would get profoundly uncomfortable and I would have to laugh along, ha ha ha. And I did not find it funny. And when I told him, he was so shocked. And I said, but you said the whole time I worked <laughs> at the CIA. And he said, I was just kidding. <laughs> For both of you, when finally, you know, you're no longer a spy, is there a sense of relief? I, I don't have to lie anymore. Uh, that's an unqualified yes. By the way, I have a similar uh, reaction to share. Uh, when I was courting the woman who was now my wife, I tried to impress her by telling her, and I hadn't told, outside of my kids, I hadn't told anybody that I once was a Russian spy. And she just absolutely did not believe it. She thought like <laughs> I was making it all up. <laughs> and she she actually finally believed it when a crew of 60 Minutes showed up at my house and uh, and interviewed me. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a kind of reconciliation between your different families, and it was, I think, Chelsea, wasn't it? Yes. That went, that, that went back to Germany. Yes. I mean, this is all in your book, and, yes. and Joe's absolutely right, a fascinating read. So Chelsea sort of brought the German family back into the equation. But as far as your your life now is concerned are you out of the reach of the kgb do they do they they have no interest in you anymore are you safe there's no kgb anymore and uh, my story is very old yes um and uh, it is very important to note that i did not betray the motherland a german by birth i was a contractor i wasn't given a rank with the kgb so they take betrayal to the motherland very seriously that usually winds up with a death penalty. Do you think that's what they tried to do with Sergei Skripal in Britain? Uh, I think Skripal was probably in, uh, involved in some activity that they didn't like, and they, they just wanted to send a message, I believe, because it was totally out of the ordinary. When After an exchange, the unwritten law was that you don't touch the exchange mm-hmm. person. And that, that was the first time that uh, that we know that somebody who had been exchanged uh, was actually subject to an assassination attempt. But to finish the, the answer, there may have been some people when they found out, and they probably didn't find out until the 60 Minutes program aired, that I deceived them. People that may have had a personal agenda to do me harm are probably not with us anymore because they were older. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm reasonably safe. Never mind. I would never ever. You give me a million dollars and a ticket to Moscow. I'd say take the take the money back. I'm not going there. Uh, Joe, are you out of contract with the CIA? Do they still have any hold on you? Are you still bound by your oaths of secrecy? Yes. I mean, you, when you join, you sign a secrecy agreement, and it's very explicit that even if you leave the agency, if you speak or write about intelligence matters, you have to get their permission and approval. Every script of the Americans went to them for approval. Uh, I have talking points, you know, I, I won't say anything in this conversation that hasn't been pre-approved as a as a talking point by them. By the way, when you leave, they have that secrecy agreement you signed and they show it to you again. And it turns out there's another place for you to sign at the bottom, like a second <laughs> signature to remind you. Uh, so yeah, you're still bound. Not everybody follows it. Uh, I do. And I, I think one ought to, but not everybody continues to feel bound by that. Essentially, you've given up some degree of your First Amendment rights, but you gave them up freely. You chose to do it in exchange for, you know, getting to have a career in espionage. I'd just like to spend the last few minutes that we have talking about now, because I I saw an interview you did a few years ago, I think 2017, Joe, when 
You said you doubted the Russian capacity to to undermine American democracy. Do you think that recent events have shown that that's still a really live concern, that that the battle has moved on uh, and we're in a different Cold War? Because looking around, I mean, tensions are, are quite high again, aren't they? Yeah, this is what my new book is about. It's called Russia Upside Down, and it's essentially a book-length answer to that question. You know, to me, it seems like a second Cold War. Whether or not you want to call it that or not doesn't really matter. The truth is we are in a serious, hostile engagement with Russia, and it seems to me unnecessary. It doesn't seem to me that we have uh, different enough interests for us to be threatening each other on this level. They are certainly trying to undermine our whole system. And while ultimately the health of our system is up to us, it doesn't help to have somebody provoking and picking away the edges and trying to make things worse. And certainly we are doing the same to them. Uh, And I don't think there's any case to be made, for example, that they started it. It's a mutual hostility that goes back a long time, even certainly back to even before the Soviet Union, but it got worse, much, much worse during the Soviet period. The example I like to give all the time is Most people who I know or I've seen write about this cannot wrap their heads around the Russian interference in our elections. That seems so such a hostile attack. And they don't think about, for example, the fact that we have, through sanctions, been waging economic warfare against Russia since well before that. So you can get into a lot of discussions and people often do. Well, what we are doing to them is justified and what they're doing to us is not justified. My book, again, spends couple hundred pages looking into that and detailing my opinion that that is a uh, erroneous way to look at it, that the fundamental fact is that we are attacking each other. And if we want to get out of this conflict, which is dangerous and is a part of the threat to our democracy, the best way to get out is to stop attacking them and see what happens. That's the way to de-escalate. Right. I'm not sure it would work, but I think it might work. And I'm sure this doesn't work. I mentioned uh, Skripal just now, and also more recently the case of, of Navalny. We can't just ignore these things, can we? I would say that there are very important and significant roles for people as individuals and for organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch to play uh, sticking up for those people. And part of the reason that they can do it so effectively is they are equal opportunity critics. They go after anyone of any country, including our own, who is violating people's basic rights. And that's fantastic. And we're very lucky to have that. And they're very, very good at it. I think that having the government play that role is a mistake and creates conflict, dangerous conflict. The the role of the government should more be to ensure peace and stability. Jack, we've talked about uh, just now about about Novichok, about, about Navalny. Are these more recent incidents, do they confirm... Uh, that sort of sense of the of Reagan being right about the evil empire? Do you look at that and say, that is not a country that I was proud to serve? You, you, yes, but it is, uh, it, it is faulty to call Russia an empire. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, Russia as a state, is, uh, with regard to a gross national product, is not even in the top 10 in the world. And the difference between Russia and their strategic plans and the Soviet Union is very big. The Soviet Union was going to dominate the world, it would take over the world. Russia wants to just uh, go back to create that safety belt around itself and be left alone and be respected, like the old Russia by the international community. And the reason that we need to talk with them and not be hung up on some of those uh, things that we don't like, but they're not strategic, such as Navalny. The reason that we need to talk with them is they still have the nuclear arsenal. And one more thing, we have absolutely no interest in destabilizing Russia because right now Putin has a strong handle on on this country. If this dissolves into anarchy, what's going to happen to the nuclear weapons? Where do they go? Yes. So, so you know, instinct. we we might we we might be morally outraged by what he's doing, but we have the interest of the United States and the entire world here uh, to represent. And I agree with uh, with Joe a hundred percent. This relationship needs to be changed. America does not understand Russian culture and the Russian mindset, and vice versa. My KGB trainers had no clue how the United States functions. 
and what it means to be an American. It goes back to a moment, Joe, in the Americans, the early episode with the, uh, when the um, attempt on, on Reagan, when Reagan is shot. And it's very interesting, the reactions. Of course, the Americans are thinking, it must be the Russians, it must be the Russians. And the Russians are thinking, oh, no, the Americans are going to think it's us. And that's that kind of mutual paranoia that you're saying exists now. And basically, both sides they say, listen, they are going to be nervous about what we're up to. We're nervous about what they're up to. That balances itself out. We don't have to get into another Cold War. Would that be correct? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that essentially what that requires is pulling back. You have to pull back from your anxiety and your fear and look at things a little bit more globally and recognize that they have concerns just like we do, that there's legitimacy to their concerns as there is to our concerns. And don't get stuck in the place of we're good, they're bad. That blinds you. Well, that's where it all began for you, isn't it? In your in your different ways. Uh, but uh, Jack has uh, indoctrination in the Eastern Bloc and, and Joe, the Reagan era, evil empire characterization of that relationship do you relax do you watch a lot of spy fiction either of you uh you joe set out to write the most realistic one what do you uh, enjoy what do you hold up currently as an example for the spy fans listening as as an authentic and compelling and realistic drama or indeed book it's always good to go back and read The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, mm -hmm. Le Carre's masterpiece, which I reread recently for the first time in a long time and is not only as great as it was when I first read it, but now that so much time has passed, reads differently. I would also, and I'm, I bet Jack will have something to say about this, but I don't think you could beat the movie The Lives of Others, mm -hmm. the German film. Absolutely. And if I may chime in, uh, the Americans, it's a phenomenally entertaining show. What they're doing very well is the psychological aspect of being an undercover agent and the family tension and all that. And on top of it, they pride themselves on being very authentic. You know, they put the jacket on me that was so ugly, but it was what we were, <laughs> what we were wearing in those days. So uh, that, that's worth watching. And, and there's a lot of binge watchers that, that, that uh, develop when they first uh, start watching the first episode. With regard to uh, literature, I highly recommend every single book written by Ben McIntyre. Yes. Well, he features on this series, uh, his latest one on Agent Sonia, yeah. which is fascinating. And we mentioned earlier on about the biggest secret of all, which of course was the, the atomic secret. That was Klaus Fuchs, I think. And that was yes. under the yes. auspices of, of Agent Sonia. By the way, sorry, I, I want to toss in one more because this is an audience of real aficionados. The much less read Ashenden by Somerset Maugham is brilliant. Yes, so that's some reading and some films to watch from people whose lives and in, in the case of Jack, certainly, I mean, it's above and beyond most fiction. And Joe, is there more from you? Are you writing more TV, more films? Uh, well, my book, Rush Upside Down, that has quite a bit about espionage in it and also just geopolitics in general. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my partner, Joel Fields, and I, who I made The Americans with, uh, we are working on a new show, Details TBD. Great. So, Jack, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Jack, and your insights, Joe, on both the, the Reagan era, the time when you started at the CIA, and, and the modern era and what is happening now. Jack, I wish you a long and happy life in America, ongoing and continuing. Uh, the illegal, finally legal. I guess you have legal status now. Oh, yes. So you can sit there in relative peace, watching episodes of Joe's future dramas and reading his <laughs> next book. And I'm sure he'll do the same for you because he's a great fan of yours. So thank you very much for joining us on The Spying Game, Jack Barsky and Joe Weisberg. This is The Spying Game. If you really want to see success in this life and the next, you do it with this. And he picked up the AK-47. I didn't know the tower was going to fall. Who would have thought that, you know, back then? But when you see your fellow human beings dying, how can you leave? Part of the appeal of playing a spy for actors is that it feels so second nature to them, that they do feel a kinship with spies. I had been playing a game, and the game is called Life. The scariest part of the work that I did is wading into the worldview of the person that you perhaps hate and fear most in the world and actually giving it the time of day. I had a permit from the government, from a sovereign government, to be a criminal. I joined thinking I would have a lot of trouble lying to people about what I did, <laughs> and it took about a week for me to get used to it. For them, I'm a traitor, I'm enemy of the state. We are not in touch by all means. 
when I took my face off. He almost fainted <laughs> because he had no idea that it was coming. Just brilliant. For more shows from the Spyscape Podcast Network, including the hit series True Spies and the great James Bond car robbery, check out spyscape.com. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.